Let me open with a word of prayer. I appreciate everyone who came. And let's dive in Zechariah and Malachi today. You can see we're at the end of the whole Old Testament. So let's pray together. Our great God, we do praise you for the fact that you are the Lord of history. That you're the creator who made all things in the beginning and you are superintending all of history, every event from the death of a single sparrow to the rise and fall of nations um, to the perfect plan of redemption that you are accomplishing in Christ. And even as we read the prophets and we hear you speak of the future regarding your people, the destiny of nations, we are reminded of your sovereign power, your awesome control over all the affairs of men. And Lord, we are reminded that these are things, truths that we will not see on the news, but we need to believe from your word that we might navigate through our lives in this world in a way that is honoring to you. And we pray that you would please bless our time this morning as we study the books of Zechariah and Malachi, that we would be built up in our faith, strengthened to understand your word. We pray for the illumination of the Spirit, that we could grasp and accept what you're teaching in your scriptures. And we pray that, Lord, that as we study together, um, we finish our class on the Old Testament, that you would just be using all of the material that we've covered to deepen our knowledge of you, our knowledge of of the truth about so many things, including the world and our lives in it and salvation and the past and the future, and that we could live our lives according to a biblical world view. So please be with us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, Zechariah. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Zechariah 1, um, we're going to start with just a few introductory matters. Interesting uh, that Zechariah is a name that is very common. So there are many Zechariahs mentioned in uh, the scriptures, uh, particularly the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. You'll read a, a lot of mentions of Zechariah, Chronicles as well. So the Zechariah who is the prophet who wrote this book is Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. And it is interesting that in Nehemiah 12, verse 1, Iddo is mentioned as one of the priests who came out of exile to back to the land. And whereas Zechariah is a common name, there's no, uh, Iddo does not seem to be common. Um, and so it makes you think that Zechariah was the son of this priest named Iddo who came out of uh, exile and that he came with his father so that he would be uh, of a priestly family. But, uh, but other than that, we're, we don't know much about Zechariah other than he seems to have been from a priestly family and the son of a man of a priest named Iddo. In terms of the date, uh, if you turn to Ezra, if you keep your finger in Zechariah and you turn to Ezra chapter 5, you see there it says, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah the son of Iddo 
prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zechariah was a contemporary of the prophet Haggai, and together they ministered to the post-exilic community of Jews, which also means that the dating of Zechariah's oracles, at least the early ones, would have been the same as when what we talked about with Haggai, that they would correspond the early oracles with, and when I say early, I mean, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but oracles 1 through 8, that they correspond with the rebuilding of the temple, which began in 520 and went for four years, was completed in 516. And when you read the oracles, it seems that some of them are dated and they span the first two years of the rebuilding process. And so he was right there alongside Haggai, encouraging the people on behalf of the Lord to finish this project of rebuilding the temple. And you remember from Haggai that they had stopped doing that for various troubles that they were experiencing, and they'd focused on building their own houses. So Zechariah is part of this process of a part part of the this work that is going on to rebuild the temple. It is interesting that if you when you get to chapter nine in the book of Zechariah, you realize a change a change. So scholars have noticed a change in the the style of writing, and particularly the content goes from these visions, these visionary oracles, to other kinds of prophecy. So. So different are these uh, nine through fourteen that many, you know, more liberal scholars are apt to say, "See this? What these weren't really by Zechariah; they're written by another prophet or someone else later on." But more likely, I mean, evangelical scholars would say, "No." More likely, what's happened is that these are oracles that perhaps were uh, given through the prophet Zechariah, but later on in his ministry. Uh, so, just in the same way that if someone went back to your, you know, high school class notes or, you know, college class notes and compared them to something that you wrote, you know, 30 or 40 years later, you might see quite a bit the difference in style and other other things because the situation in life is so different, you've changed. And so perhaps that's why these oracles that come from a later date uh, look somewhat different to those that could read Hebrew and can compare them at that level. So perhaps in as late as the 480s, remember when you're in BC, you're counting down. So 520 uh, is would have been later on, would have been earlier than 480. So perhaps in the 480, 470 BC is when the, the later oracles, 9 through 14, were, were written or delivered. Okay, and then the recipients, obviously... Zechariah is one of these what you call post-exilic prophets. He was ministering to the community of Israelites that had gone back to the land after the decree of Cyrus releasing the Jews to return to the land of Israel. So he's ministering to that post-exile community of Israelites that are now back in the land of Israel. Okay, any questions about, about this introductory stuff regarding Zechariah? Okay. So a little bit about the background and purpose. Let me just paint a picture for you. If you were to go back and read the earlier prophets, 
you know, the pre-exilic prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc., you would have read about the fact that Israel was one day going to return out of exile back to the land, right? So when that happened in 538, right, after 70 years, as Jeremiah had prophesied, Cyrus unexpectedly, an incredible turn of events, releases the Jews to return back to Israel. And you think, this is it, right? This is what the prophets, this, this must be what the prophets were saying. Except, you know the predictions of the prophets, that when they returned out of exile, it would correspond with all kinds of other incredible blessings, you know, like uh, a new temple, new Jerusalem, new Davidic king, new covenant, new hearts, a renewed land even. And so, you know, you can imagine, okay, if we are returning now out of exile, we would expect that these things begin to happen as well. But unfortunately, um, they didn't happen. They remain under foreign rule, first the Babylonians, then the Persians, and after that the Greeks, and after that the Romans, you know, they, they still are under the thumb of foreign powers. They're, they get back to the land, they are continued to be heavily taxed, paying tribute to their rulers. They find themselves harassed by enemies around, you remember reading about Tobiah and Sanballat in Ezra and Nehemiah, they're struggling financially, suffering, uh, as we read in Haggai, covenant curses because of their neglect to rebuilding the house of God, the temple. So, you know, they're going back to the old days of famine and their crops aren't growing. There's no rain. Uh, they're struggling, struggling financially. And then the temple in Jerusalem are still in ruins, right? They've never been rebuilt. And so... When that happens, the, you can imagine the people would be discouraged, wondering whether, you know, okay, we've returned out of exile, but it's a pretty sad existence. It's not what the prophets said would happen. And so they could wonder whether God was, had abandoned them, whether he was still with them. And, and, and therefore, you know, if you believe that God had abandoned you because you didn't see the prophecies take place the way that you thought, then you could lose your motivation to keep the covenant with God, right? What's the point of being faithful to God if he's no longer owning us as his own covenant people? And so Zechariah, along with Haggai, along with Ezra and Nehemiah, but particularly Zechariah and Haggai are messengers from the Lord. And they come and they announced that while they have returned out of exile, this is not the final fulfillment of what the prophet said that 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 promised restoration you know all these things here is still coming it's coming in the future right and so they exhort them so don't stop keeping covenant with god don't start disobeying him you know rebuild the temple rebuild the altar and then later with nehemiah rebuild jerusalem just don't become discouraged. Know that the promised restoration that you're looking for is coming. God isn't done with you. And so this is a little bit of the situation into which Zechariah's ministry comes. And a couple of other interesting things about Zechariah to note are, one, it's the longest of the minor prophets, right? So it's a very significant book in the minor prophets. It's the most frequently cited or alluded to of the minor prophets in the New Testament. 
It would, if you just took straight citations, it would be close between Zechariah and Hosea. But Hosea, most of the citations are to like maybe one or two passages cited repeatedly. Zechariah is more widely cited, and also there's more allusions to Zechariah, especially in the book of Revelation. And so it's the most frequently cited or alluded to prophet, uh, prophet in the New Testament. Only Ezekiel is alluded to more in Revelation. In other words, there's more echoes of Zechariah and Revelation than any other book other than Ezekiel. And by the way, that's because it contains oracles that are written in the same genre as Revelation. In other words, apocalyptic oracles. You remember visions filled with symbols in which an angel helps you interpret those visions. So this is you, this is an, another book. You have Daniel that contains apocalyptic literature, and you have Ezekiel that contains some apocalyptic visions, and you have uh, Zechariah that contains some apocalyptic material. And then you get to the New Testament, and you say, "Oh yeah, it's the same kind of literature. It's the same genre of literature as Revelation." So that's why you see a lot of echoes of Zechariah in the book of Revelation. Okay? So any questions about the background? Any of that stuff? All right. Let's start getting into the book here. Just a little bit of an outline. If you go back to Zechariah chapter 1, we'll actually read this. This is the opening to the book. It's sort of an opening call to the people not to be stubborn and rebellious like their fathers were that led them into exile. They're going down that same road, and so Zechariah calls them to repent and don't be like their fathers. So we'll read in verses chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, it says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes which I commanded, my servants the prophets... Did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts proposed purpose to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. So you see, it's it's basically saying, Look, don't go down the same road as your fathers did. What happened to them? Repent. Listen to me and repent. Uh, So this is the Lord speaking through Zechariah. And then what you have in the next section, 1-7 through 8-23, is you have eight consecutive symbolic visions. And this is the material that is largely what I would say apocalyptic. Symbolic visions or visions filled with symbols. And you have an angel in the mix helping Zechariah understand what the visions mean. Okay, so the first vision is, um, and, I, and I just put here in the underlined section, what it said, what each vision says that Zechariah saw, okay, in the vision. So this first vision is of men on horses. So let's actually read this, just so you can get a, 
a taste of, we're not going to read every vision, but this is the first vision of men on horses in chapter 1, verses 7 through 17. And what you see is that the vision, what it symbolizes is that the nations were, were at peace while Jerusalem was judged, right? They had gone into exile. But now, the Lord says, through this vision, Jerusalem is going to be at peace while the nations are going to be judged. So it's envisioning a time of a reversal of fortunes for God's people. So let's read chapter 1, beginning in verse 7 through verse 17. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red sorrel and white horses. Then I said, What are they? What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered, Gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me, So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry, but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, says, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Okay, so you see the, a vision with these horses, men on horses, and the interpretation is given through the angel that while the nations were at peace and, and Jerusalem was judged, there's going to come a time when it'll be reversed and Jerusalem will be restored and the nations will be judged. Okay, so... A symbolic vision, verse 1. And then the second vision is in verses 18 through 21. It's a vision of four horns and four craftsmen. And when you read the vision, you realize that what it's portraying is that the nations that had destroyed Israel, and what I mean is the whole nation, Israel and Judah, themselves will be destroyed. Okay, so that's what the second vision portrays. Uh, judgment upon the nations that destroy Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, is a third vision. And what he sees is a man with a measuring line. And when you read through this vision, you see that the interpretation is that the Lord will bring Israel out of exile to dwell secure and prosperous in their land again. And, And it portrays a sort of new and better exodus. In other words, when you read through the vision, you see echoes of the first exodus But this time, instead of out of Egypt, it's out of exile. But the same terminology, the same imagery of being delivered out of bondage to foreign powers and being brought to the land, like at the first exodus, is being described here. Okay, so this is the third vision. And then the fourth vision is one you're probably familiar with, if nothing else, because of that little children's book, called The Priest with Dirty Clothes that R.C. Sproul wrote. And it was about this vision where he sees the high priest 
standing in dirty clothes before the Lord and Satan is there to accuse him. Uh, but the Lord removes his dirty clothes and purified, clothes him with pure clothes. And then the interpretation of the vision is that God is going to remove the sins of his people in an instant. And so let's actually read this one, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, so that you can see this wonderful vision. You can see why Sproul chose to write on it. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Then he showed me, so again, a vision. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to him, Those who are standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you. They are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. Who do you think that is? Yeah, that's a reference to the Messiah, right? I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So here we have at the end an interpretation of the vision that it points to a time when the branch, the Messiah, will come and the Lord will remove the iniquity of his people entirely in a single instant. And then they will enjoy this prosperity that echoes back the days of um, the early days of Canaan. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Prosperity and security. Okay. The next vision is a golden lampstand and two olive trees. And the interpretation of this vision is that even though it looks impossible, Zerubbabel would end up rebuilding the temple by the power of the Holy Spirit. So remember the context here, along with Haggai, Zechariah is encouraging the people to rebuild the temple, which they had stopped doing. And here in this vision, he's saying, though it, though it seems like an impossible task, Zerubbabel is going to be able to do it. But it'll be by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is connected with the two olive trees, the oil uh, being symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's the next vision. After that, he sees a flying scroll in chapter 5. And this vision, the interpretation is that the scroll represents the law of God and that those who violate the law of God are going to be purged from the community of God's people through the covenant curses. So that, that's what he sees is this flying scroll and then the interpretation is given, and that's, that's what the vision seems to be uh, communicating. Uh, some of you may have heard of this vision as well. It's a woman sitting in a basket. 
And we'll actually read this, but what you'll see is that the interpretation of this vision is that the basket and the woman in the basket symbolize Israel's sin, and the basket is removed, symbolizing that God is going to permanently remove from the post-exilic community all the wicked. And so let's read this vision. This is uh, chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. It's just a short vision, but it says it goes like this. Chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between the earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? He said to me, To the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. So the picture is of the wicked and of wickedness being removed from the land of Israel. And really, it's a picture of a permanent removal, seems to be the idea. In other words, a future purging of the people from all their sin. Okay, and then finally, the last of the eight visions in in the section but the, not the end of the section itself. So, the last vision contains four chariots between two bronze mountains. And uh, if you read the vision, you'd see that the interpretation given is that God is going to judge the nations, and especially the focus is upon Assyria and Babylon. Why do you think the focus on those two nations in particular? The nations that Right. Assyria captured, destroyed the northern kingdom, Babylon destroyed the southern kingdom. And these two nations, the idea of the, this vision is that they, they who destroyed God's people and took them away into exile will themselves be judged. So a similar theme to some of the earlier visions. Okay, so these are the visions uh, in chapters 1 through 8. There's more to that section, chapters 1 through 8, but these are the these are the uh, at least the opening sections in one through six is these these eight visions. Any questions about the visions? All right. So as we continue our way through in chapter six, nine through fifteen, we have this very interesting prophecy, and it's a prophecy of Joshua the high priest crowned. And uh, we'll read it, and then, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. But let's, let's read chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. And the word of the Lord came to me, Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is Brant is the branch. So who's the branch? The Messiah. For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne. 
and the counsel of peace shall be between them both. That is, between the office of priesthood and kingship, right? And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helem, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So what this vision seems to symbolize, while there's you know many mysterious elements to it, is the fact that when the Messiah comes, the offices of priesthood and kingship will be brought together in him. That he will build the temple and he will be enthroned in the temple and he will be both king and priest. And when that day comes, there will be this sort of glorious uh, gathering of people from far off to help and build the temple. So it will be, there's sort of a universality to it. So, very interesting because, you know, throughout the history of Israel, were the, was the priest ever the king? No, those were two separate offices, right? But what we see is that in the Messiah, they will be brought together. So you see what's happening here. Zechariah is the second to last prophet, right, in the canon and in history. As you get closer and closer and closer to the arrival of the Messiah, you're getting more and more light, more and more revelation about who he would be. And here you're told that he would be both a priest and a king, which is true, right? The writer of Hebrews tells us this more than anyone else. Chapter 7, in this interesting passage, the people, at this point, the temple is now being rebuilt. Zechariah and Haggai have encouraged the people. They're rebuilding the temple. There had been a group of Israelites who had been fasting regularly, mourning over the temple being in ruins. Well, now that it's being rebuilt, they come and they ask whether they need to keep fasting or not. And the Lord uses this opportunity to say, look, the fast I want is not just you abstaining from food. The fast I want is for you to be obedient from the heart. This is what I've always wanted. And so this you have this incident here uh, in chapter 7, verse 1 through 14, where the Lord takes the opportunity to communicate that message to his people. Then in chapter 8, the last section, you have this extended oracle prophesying the, the coming restoration of Judah and Jerusalem. And as you read through this section, you see the Lord is pictured as coming to, returning to Jerusalem, to dwell in Jerusalem. You know, there's a reason why Jerusalem was called the city of God, because the temple was there, right? God lived there. And here, you know, Jerusalem had been in ruins, the temple had been destroyed, and in the future you see this vision of God once again dwelling in his, among his people in the city of God. And then you see in the vision a purified remnant of Israel, a, a remnant of Israelites who will no longer be wicked, but they will live there practicing righteousness and truth. So a purified people. And that they will be secure and they will be prosperous. And he uses this very interesting image of fasts being replaced by feasts. Right? Fasts symbolize we are under God's judgment. Feasts symbolize we are experiencing his blessing. And there will be in this vision, or in this oracle, this remnant of purified Israelites becomes a blessing to the nations. And they want to join in what Israel is experiencing, this restoration. So it's a 
a redemption oracle foretelling using the categories of that time the future restoration that's coming for God's people. Okay, so that takes us through the first part of the book. Any questions on chapters 1 through 8 so far? Okay, well, that brings us to the last section, and I'm going to move through this uh, quite a bit more quickly. In the last section, chapters 9 through 14, I'm just going to walk through what we see in this, in this particular thing. You can actually turn to chapter 9 and sort of skim through, and you'll see as you skim through what I'm talking about. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, is an oracle in which the prophet predicts the destruction of all of Israel's enemies, you know, the Philistines and the Jebusites and the Syrians, etc., those enemy nations surrounding them. So this very common type of oracle predicting the judgment of all of Israel's surrounding enemies. And then in chapter 9, 9 through 17, is an oracle predicting something about the Messiah, that he would come back to Jerusalem, that he would enter Jerusalem, but he would do so in a humble way, mounted on a donkey, right? And he would save Israel, he would rule the earth, and he would bring peace to the nations. So let's actually read this oracle. It's familiar to you. Every time you read the Gospels and you get to the place where Jesus enters Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, you hear this oracle referenced. Okay, So listen to what it says. Rejoice greatly. Zechariah, this is Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double For I have bent Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Um, And then I'll read through verse 17. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the slinging stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord God will save them as, a flock, as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty! Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. So, you know, what you see in the triumphal entry narrative is those first two verses. What you don't hear is the broader context, that when the king comes, humble and mounted on a donkey, to Jerusalem, he's going to rule the nations, bring peace and righteousness, and make his people into a crowning jewel that shines on the land, right? So that's the that's the oracle uh, in 9, 9 through 17. In chapter 10, You have an oracle, if you look there, we won't read through the whole thing, but it's another redemption oracle about how the Lord is going to redeem his people out of exile. 
and destroy their enemies in the process. It's a common theme in the scriptures of salvation through judgment. And if you think about it, that goes all the way back to the Exodus. The Exodus was salvation through judgment. He judged Egypt with ten plagues so that he might deliver his people out. And in the future, there's going to be a a second exodus, a greater exodus, where he'll judge Israel's enemies and bring them out of exile back to the land. In chapter 11, you have another oracle in which the Lord describes himself as the shepherd of a flock that's doomed to slaughter. So now, now you have a sort of negative note about how God's people, the Old Covenant people, has been wicked, how they've rejected their shepherd, God, and how they are doomed as a result. And that, and that leads you into the next chapter, chapter 12, in which you see that the Lord says that a time is coming when he's going to grant his people, this rebellious flock doomed to slaughter, he's going to grant them repentance, at least a remnant of them. And he's going to forgive them so that they might be strong again. And so if you read through that oracle, it sort of flows out of chapter 11. The Lord's going to give salvation to his people, except the salvation will come through conviction of sin, through repentance that would lead to forgiveness. And it's only when they repent by God's Spirit, as the Spirit's poured out on them, that they're going to be able to to be restored. So, for instance, if we read chapter 12, verse 10, through chapter 13, verse 1, we'll just read this little section here. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me on whom they have pierced, ah, you hear that, right? It's interesting that Yahweh is speaking here, right? And yet he describes himself as being pierced by his people. But then they will turn to him again after having pierced him. And they will, they will be convicted. And they will mourn. So it says, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself and the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by themselves, by itself and their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left each by itself and their wives by themselves. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. It's a very interesting text. It's mysterious in that context. Yahweh says he's pierced by his people, but they will turn, they will look upon him who they have pierced, they will mourn bitterly and weep, and as a result, God will forgive them. He'll open up a fountain of forgiveness so that they can be clean from their uncleanness. Now, we look at it and we go, oh yeah, we know exactly what he's talking about, except we know that what's profound about this is Yahweh would be the branch, would be the Messiah, the Messiah is Yahweh, and he, that's how he would be pierced. Because how do you pierce God, right? <laughs> you pierce God only when he's taken on human flesh and entered into his creation. And then you understand, ah, yes, it's the very piercing 
over which they mourn when they see that they've killed their own Messiah. And you're thinking, yeah, Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, you know, Peter preaches to them about how you, this Jesus whom you crucified, and they're cut to the heart, and they, and many are saved. You, you, start, you can understand, you have the light of the New Testament to shine back on here, and you can understand what's being said. But in that context, it's, it's very mysterious, right? And then in the next section, chapters 7, 13, 7 through 9, we see that the Messiah is killed again, but a remnant is saved in the process. So this too is a passage that you uh, recognize. So let's read together chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. So you have God who is the ultimate shepherd of his people, but he sets a shepherd over them. Ezekiel said that this would be David whom he will set over as the shepherd of his people. But David's long gone by Ezekiel's day. So who is the shepherd of the Lord whom he would set over his people? It's the, another reference to the Messiah, right? So except here you have God's king, his ultimate shepherd over his people, except you have a sword. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. God's Messiah is struck with a sword against the man who stands next to me, right? God's at God's right hand, his king. This is unbelievable. God's Messiah, his appointed shepherd, his king at his right hand. A sword is awakened against him and he's struck down. And who's telling the sword to do that? God, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Okay, and you go, wow. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. When the shepherd is struck, when the Messiah is struck, the sheep will be scattered. His people will be scattered. You remember Jesus telling his disciples that that was going to happen, right? In fact, if you memorize John 14 through 16 uh, with this memorization project, you get to um, chapter 16 and he says, you know, behold, I tell you, an hour is coming. Indeed, it has already come when you will all be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone, right? But I am not alone. My father is with me. So this is the background of that. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, a remnant who is purified, and refine them as one refined silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. So that ancient promise, the, the core promise of the covenant, to be the people of God, to be able to say, you are my God and we are your people, or hear him say that to you, you are my people and I am your God, that will be said of this remnant of Israelites who will be purified when the shepherd is struck. And again, we can look back on this and we know what's talking about, but it's mysterious. Zechariah tells us multiple times that the Messiah will be killed. And then the last section, chapter 14, is an extended oracle predicting a final day of judgment and of redemption for God's people. So let's just finish Zechariah by reading this oracle together. It's a glorious oracle, mysterious and wonderful. Chapter 14, verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle 
and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. So God's people will be persecuted and killed, uh, at least partially by their enemies, but God will fight them on this day and destroy their enemies. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So in this final day of reckoning, when God will judge the enemies of his people who have been harming and killing them, he will stand on the Mount of Olives. It's a day of cataclysmic judgment, right? The olive shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Uh, So the Lord comes with all the angels. On that day there will be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. So this is a change to the created order. This is you know, a time when the seasons change and there's no more night and there's no more winter and and living waters flow out from Jerusalem as if Jerusalem is like the Garden of Eden. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the gate of the former gate. So there's a prominence to Jerusalem and to God who's enthroned there. Verse 11, And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security, and this shall be the plague with which the Lord shall strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. You know, you think of that scene in, what is it, the Temple of Doom with Harrison Ford. The Last Crusade. It's the Last Crusade where you have the Germans go and they find the Ark of the Covenant and they, their faces rot away. It might have even been taken from this passage. I don't know. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of another. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. So you see there's a great cataclysmic judgment against all the enemies of God's people, but there is a remnant of the peoples, of the nations, that survives and they worship the Lord with God's people. So a remnant of Jews and a remnant of Gentiles who worship the Lord while the rest are judged. They shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And in any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. There will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the there shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. 
And on that day there shall be inscribed in the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all the sacrifices may come, and all whose sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall be no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of the hosts on that day. So utilizing the categories of the old covenant, it describes a day in which everyone will worship the Lord without exceptions. There will be a remnant of Jews and Gentiles who worship together. All who have refused to worship the Lord are judged. And holiness permeates everything, not just the temple, but even the bells on the horses testify that even the horses are holy to the Lord. Holiness permeates everything now. Your even common pot in Jerusalem is holy. It's as if, you know, the temple, it's as if all Jerusalem is a temple now, right? And everything in it is sacred. Um, So, again, mysterious but wonderful. A time portrayed using the categories of the Old Covenant, which, of course, you know, the Old Covenant is done away with, with the coming of Christ. So the fulfillment of this is going to come in categories, in realities that to which the Old Covenant pointed. But there's, you know, there's not going to be sacrifices in the fulfillment, Old Covenant sacrifices in an Old Covenant temple. But the fulfillment is going to, is indicated by this, these descriptions. Everything is holy. No, ex, you know, the whole, all the wicked are judged. Worship of the Lord permeates the earth. And, and everyone who refuses is, to worship the Lord is eradicated. And so that's how the book of Zechariah ends. You know, and think of it, if Zechariah is ministering to the post-exilic people who are like, hey, we're out of exile, but, you know, all the promises haven't come to pass yet. Has the Lord abandoned us? And he's saying, no, <laughs> time's coming when it will all happen. So that's the overview Just quickly, because time is slipping away. This is why I said I might take a little bit longer at the beginning. In general, Zechariah portrays, it it gives us another description of the future restoration of a remnant of Jews and Gentiles. It gives us a description of the future destruction of the wicked in Israel and in the nations. It tells us that it will come about through a purification from sin, which is brought by the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, and it's brought about through the death, the sacrifice, and the rule of the Messiah. By the way, if the Messiah is struck with the sword, if the Messiah is killed, and yet the Messiah also rules over the world forever, what must happen in between those two events? There must be a resurrection of the Messiah, right? So I've always felt like, Resurrection is implied by those dual themes in the Old Testament of the Messiah being a sacrifice who dies and a Messiah and the Messiah being a king who reigns forever overall. In order for those two things to be true, there's an, an implied resurrection. And I would say you see that in the book of Zechariah. So in this book we see more light given about the Messiah. He would be a priest and a king. He would come to Jerusalem in a humble way. Mounted on a donkey, he would be rejected and killed by his people, but he would rule over the earth and bring peace to the nations. So all of these things about the Messiah are taught in Zechariah. Also, Zechariah in the New Testament, 
Well, Zechariah 9, 9 is, is referenced in Matthew 21, 5 as being fulfilled in the triumphal entry of Jesus. Zechariah 13, 7 is referenced in Matthew 26, 31 as being fulfilled when, in Jesus' death. Zechariah 11, 12, and 13 is referenced in Matthew 26, 15. It's complicated. You'll have to go back and look, but God speaks of him, his people as despising him and you know, being willing to sell him for 30 pieces of silver, and then that's fulfilled in Jesus' betrayal. And then Zechariah 12.10 is, is cited in John 19.37 and Revelation 1.7 as being fulfilled in Jesus as he's raised from the dead, and now they look on him whom they have pierced and they mourn. And then also, many of the visions of Zechariah you know, the horses of different colors, the golden lampstand, the two olive trees. You see those same symbols reemerge in the book of Revelation. And they seem to echo the visions of Zechariah. And then finally, Zechariah 14.8, living waters flowing out of Jerusalem, is uh, one of a number of texts. You also see it in other Old Testament oracles. Uh, anticipating what's portrayed in Revelation 22.1 of the new Jerusalem and living waters flowing out. In other words, the river flowing out with the tree of life on either side that brings healing to the nation. So it seems as if the implication is that what Zechariah was foreseeing in, in that last 14, 14th chapter would find its ultimate fulfillment in the new creation, the new Jerusalem, where the whole city is a temple where living waters flow out of it, where Christ rules in the midst of it, where the nations are outside and judged. Right? And that's how I interpret the fulfillment of that final vision. All right, any questions about Zechariah before we briefly, in 10 minutes or so, go through Malachi, which is obviously a much simpler book in many ways. Questions, though? Oh. The question was observed. I yeah. didn't realize there was such... I hadn't paid close attention before was the, the amount of references back in the, from Zechariah right. and all these different places. Right. It's definitely a key book in terms yeah. of the New Testament. It, again, like I'm saying, if you think of what we call progressive revelation, which is that the farther you get along in redemptive history, the more and more light you get about God's redemptive plan, such that in Genesis 3, it's you know that the Messiah is going to be a man, seed of the woman, you know. And then you get, oh, he's going to be of the seed of Abraham, and then of the tribe of Judah, and then he's going to be a Davidic king. And then as the prophets go on, you get more and more portrayal of what kind of king he's going to be and what his reign is going to be like and what he's going to do. And by the time you get to Zechariah, one of the last prophets, it's like the light is really bright. You know, you find out quite a bit about Jesus such that when you get... After Zechariah and Malachi, there's 400 years of silence. And then you come to Jesus and there's all these references back to the prophets. So the, the, the New Testament saying, this, this is the one whom the prophets were speaking of. I was there for 400 years. Is it because of, of their non-belief and the way they live I mean, I think it's mysterious. I mean, we don't know. I think one thing to say is that time periods like that 
like you say, oh, 400 years, that's a long time. Well, there's also 400 years between Genesis and Exodus, right? Where they were just down living in the land of Canaan, right? Um, I guess you, you don't really, I wasn't aware of that, but you don't think much of it there because it yeah. seems like it all flows. Right, right. You, when you're reading through, yeah, it's like you see, you finish uh, Zachariah and, and uh, Malachi. Right. And then you're starting with, with uh, Matthew when you're reading through the Bible. Right. And it seems like such a big... Right. Seems like a huge gap, but Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Periods of time in in the Bible are you know, you know much longer than what we oftentimes think because we're just reading it through as a story, but you know think of uh Moses from the time that he left Egypt fleeing, fleeing from Pharaoh to the time he went back for the Exodus was 40 years. He just yeah. wandered out in the desert for 40 years. I mean, I'm sure he thought, well, you know, this is my life. You know, this is all I'm ever going to do. Uh, and yet, the Lord had other plans, and so it's a it's a helpful reminder to us as well because it's a reminder that God's you know God's timing is not not our timing. Yeah, and and if He asks us to wait for things, that's not that's not unusual for how He works, right? And to Him, that 400 years was. Nothing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, that's Second Peter three. We're talking about the second coming. You know, is the Lord? People will say, "Hey, where is the promise of His coming? He hasn't come back. Things just keep going on like normal." And and Peter says, "Well, the Lord's not slow about His promise. To Him, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. He'll come all right." You know. And then he says, "The reason He's delaying is." Because he is patient, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so, you know, thank goodness he delays. Um, but he also delays for other reasons that we don't understand. You know, things that he has a, an entire plan. He sees the big picture that we don't see. You know, it's like when you're waiting from for your part from the uh, dealership nowadays, and you got to wait four weeks for your. And you're like, oh, why? How could this be? And you know, you know, there's probably a million reasons why suppliers here and things that have to unfold we don't see all that we just know we got to wait four weeks for our little part you know well the lord has all he sees the big picture you know there's all kinds of things going on the thing about this too seeing how to and and even with the the larger time spans it's it's another evidence of how he's knitted all of this together right over this large span right and um for, for all of those that would say, oh yeah, somebody just threw all this together right. and wrote this book. I mean, you know, not. Um, right. Yeah, liberal scholars who like to parse up the Bible and say, you know, it's obviously not a divine book. It was just written by a bunch of different people and it was edited over time and stuff. It's like they emphasize differences and ignore the continuity, you know, <laughs> like they just, it's like, you know, it's like saying, uh, you know, a, a person has such terrible skin because of one little, you know, blemish. And you just focus in on that one blemish and be like, oh, it's so terrible. And you're like, yeah, but look at like everything else, which is so great. You know, I think there's a sense in which people do that with the Bible. They just, they, they want to undermine it. So they look at little things, which of course 
are not actually, there's nothing wrong with the Bible. But they try to, they try to break it apart and, you know, undermine its unity. But if you just step back and you look at the Bible as a whole, it's incredible the unity and the continuity between the books. It's evident that there's a divine mind behind it. If you're willing to humble yourself and see it. Okay, well, let's go to Malachi. We'll go through this very quickly. Malachi 1.1 tells us the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. It is interesting that you'll see a little number in your Bibles next to the name Malachi because the name means my messenger. And so it is a, a little bit unclear whether or not Malachi is a title or a name. In other words, he's saying the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by my messenger or is the word that can be translated my messenger an actual proper name? It's not entirely clear. He is the last of the minor prophets, both in the canon of scripture and also in history. If you read through the book, you see that the temple is rebuilt, which pushes it after 516 BC. It also mentions Jerusalem as if it is rebuilt and, and existing and sacrifices and stuff or, or you know, activity in the temple has been resumed, which would push it off to somewhere after Nehemiah. And you can also see that there is language in the book. Scholars have pointed out that the particular word used in 1.8 clearly is a Persian word or a, a, a terminology that would have been used under the Persian Empire. So that takes us, it's, it must be between this date and this date. The same sins described in Malachi as in Ezra and Nehemiah indicate that perhaps they were contemporaries, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi. But inevitably, or in the end, he's ministering to the post-exilic community of Israelites that we've already been talking about, Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, Nehemiah. It's the same period of time. But he seems to be the final prophet that God sends to Israel, his old covenant people. Until John the Baptist, that is. So the purpose of the book, if we just walk through this, it's been a long time since Israel's return. You know, perhaps even a hundred years. Both the temple and the city have been rebuilt. But the things the prophets said would happen when God brought Israel out of exile haven't happened yet. So much like I said with Zechariah, the, the, they've become disillusioned. They've become lax in keeping God's covenant commands. They've lost motivation because they think, well, maybe God doesn't care about us anymore. And you can see that come out in the book. So the message of Malachi is the Lord is speaking to the prophet and confronting the community of Israel and saying, you're breaking my commands. And so the book of Malachi actually contains a series of what you might say are disputations where the Lord is, has a dispute with his people. You're doing this. You're breaking my covenant. And then he calls them to repent. And then he makes certain pronouncements along the way. So Malachi contains this series of disputations where the Lord is confronting his people for their violations of the covenant, which probably happened because of this. And he's arguing, I haven't, I haven't abandoned you, right? If you actually look, I've been faithful to you. It's you who have abandoned me. And then he also says, repent, because there is, the fulfillment is still coming. I haven't gone back on my promises. It's still coming in the future. Okay, so a little outline of what's in the book. We're really not going to be able to read these because of time. 
But the first disputation is in chapter 1, 2 through 5. You can look there. Um, and I'm actually quoting from the book. So you can see these common themes. In the introduction is, he says to them, I have loved you. And they question him, how have you loved us? And he, he goes back to his election of them. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've set my love upon you, Israel. Going back to your forefather, Jacob. Uh, and then the second disputation is in chapter 1, verse 6 through 2, 9. And here's the introduction. I am a father who deserves honor and a master who deserves fear, but instead the priests have despised my name. And then they respond with a question. How have we despised your name? And then his answer. By offering polluted food on my altar. Uh, in other words, they brought lame and sick animals, right? So it's sort of like they were just bringing the animals they didn't care about sacrificing. The third disputation, chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Introduction, the Lord no longer regards your offerings or accepts them with favor from your hands. Question, why does he not? Answer, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. In other words, I'm not accepting your offerings. And they say, why? Because you guys are divorcing your wives unlawfully, right? You're being unfaithful to your covenant with your wives, and therefore, I don't have regard for your, your worship. Then, the next disputation, 2.17-3.5. Introduction. You've wearied the Lord with your words. Question. How have we wearied him? Answer. By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he, and he delights in them. Or, by asking, where is the God of justice? In other words, where is the Lord? He just lets the wicked prosper. Where is where's God's justice in all of this? And then his pronouncement, I will send my messenger to prepare the way before me. I will suddenly come to my temple in the person of the messenger of the covenant, who we know is, we have John the Baptist, and then the messenger of the covenant. Anyways, he predicts that John the Baptist is going to come, who's going to prepare the way for him to arrive. And that when he comes, he's going to purify some and judge others. So here's the pronouncement sort of answers this question, right? They say, hey, you're just letting the wicked prosper. He says, oh, I'm coming. <laughs> My messenger is going to come and prepare the way. And then I'm going to come. And when I come, I'm going to purify my house and judge the wicked. And then the fifth disputation, the introduction. Return to me and I will return to you. Question, how shall we return? Answer, stop robbing me of the tithes and offerings that you should be bringing into my house. And then he gives a pronouncement. As long as you continue to rob me, you are cursed. But if you bring the tithes and offerings, I will bless you, right? So he's basically saying, look, you need to repent. Why? What are we doing, God? Well, you're not bringing in the tithes and offerings that my old covenant laws prescribed. If you keep doing that, you're going to continue to suffer financial loss and other covenant curses. But if you will just bring in your tithes, I will pull, open up the windows of heaven and generously provide for all of your needs. Right. And then finally, the sixth disputation. Introduction. Um, this is in chapter 3 and 4. Your words have been hard against me. And the people ask, how have we spoken against you? Answer. You have said... It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in, the, as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. In other words, what's the use of serving God 
right? He's abandoned us. Uh, he lets the wicked prosper and does, and they don't suffer any punishment. So why should we worry about being righteous, right? And then he gives this pronouncement. In contrast to this charge, a great day of the Lord is coming when the righteous who serve me will be spared and vindicated and blessed while the wicked will be burned up like stubble. So he says, oh, don't you think that. Don't you think it's useless to serve me? Uh, a day of reckoning is coming when the righteous will be saved and the wicked punished. And then there's a final appendix in the book, verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4. And uh, we'll read this. This is the one text we'll read here. 4, 4 through 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. In other words, keep my old covenant. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, when you look at Malachi, you realize there's a lot that it teaches. Obviously, there's some very practical lessons, right? God is going to be faithful to keep his promises. If he delays in doing that, we have to keep obeying. We're not excused from obedience just because we don't understand what God's doing. And disobedience is going to lead to judgment if we don't repent. And there's also other lessons, lessons about election, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, about divorce, where he talks about how they're divorcing their wives, about giving, where he talks about the tithes and offerings. There's lots of things that teaches us about these things. It also teaches us an interpretive lesson that you know, the people were disillusioned because they'd been brought out of exile, like the prophets said, but the rest of the prophecies hadn't been fulfilled. And Malachi, as well as Zechariah, teach us that well, that original return out of exile wasn't the ultimate return out of exile that the prophets were speaking of. There was a greater return out of exile to come when they would actually be delivered from bondage to their enemies. So the initial return out of exile was just a foretaste, a type that pointed forward to the greater return out of exile that would come through Jesus Christ. And then finally, Malachi in the New Testament. Well, Malachi 1-2 is cited in Romans 9.13 about Romans 9 election, right? Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. That salvation ultimately is by God's choice to save some and not others. Malachi 3.1, which is, Behold, I will send my messenger before you, before I come, to prepare the way before me. Well, that's cited in the Gospels there. Uh, in reference to John the Baptist, it says that it's that prophecy is fulfilled in John the Baptist as the as the forerunner to the Messiah. So the Lord did come in the person of the Messiah, and He came to purify His house and to judge the wicked. And then Matthew or Malachi four five is, you know, I will send Elijah, and you see that prophecy referenced in the Gospels as well as referring to John the Baptist as well, that he, you know, you remember Jesus saying, answering the disciples' question, they say, I thought Elijah was going to come. And he said, well, actually, Elijah did come, right? <laughs> and that was John the Baptist. And then finally, as you look at Malachi and as these other prophecies, I would say that, and of course, there's debate about this among 
various strains of evangelicalism, but I would say that what we see is that the ultimate fulfillment of the prophetic hope, it has arrived with Jesus. He is the Messiah, and the, the, the prophecies are being fulfilled, but not all at once, rather in a now and a not yet way. So if you think about the great return out of exile, for instance, well, that's happened right now to in a sense. We've been delivered out of the kingdom of Satan and brought into the kingdom of Christ. But there's also a final and ultimate fulfillment of that where we will be finally freed entirely from all of our enemies and brought into the new heavens and the new earth. And uh, so I think that as you look at these prophecies, you see that the Messiah has come. They've begun to be fulfilled, but they're being fulfilled not all at once, but in a now and not yet way. Uh, some scholars call it inaugurated, but not yet consummated eschatology. Um, and in between, the great event that's happening in between is that the nations are being gathered in through the preaching of the gospel. All right, well, that's Malachi. I know we went long today, obviously. I warned you about that. Hopefully that was helpful to you. Let's close in a word of prayer and ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the prophets that you have uh, given us this opportunity to study them. We pray for wisdom, for understanding of the prophetic oracles um, and all of the books that are listed among the prophets that we would, uh, that now that we have seen the coming of Christ, that we would be able to learn more of his glory, of who he is and what he has accomplished as we read the prophets which pointed forward to him. And that we would rejoice and be filled with gratitude as we realize that we have been counted among those who have received the glorious redemption that the prophets foretold. And, uh, and that though it hasn't all been fulfilled at once, that it, what they foretold is in the process of being fulfilled. And that one day we can know that there will be the, the, the prophetic hope will come to its final consummation in that day when living waters will flow from Jerusalem in the new creation. And Lord, we pray, we, we look to Christ and to his return. We long for that day, but we thank you for the rich and glorious blessings which you've already given to us in Christ and that we are counted among uh, the redeemed, purified by his blood, citizens of his heavenly kingdom. And we pray that you would just continue to fill us with gratitude and love for Christ as we consider these things together. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.